Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Gunturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello everybody, I have Colleen Ghosh with me today. She is a life coach for women in toxic relationships. She teaches women in toxic relationship how to develop their voice to get out of their life of fear and stress to a life of freedom, joy and empowerment. She shares her experiences and tools of self-discovery and growth with her clients so that they can live a life of abundance while feeling empowered, fulfilled, and confident. Thank you for being on the show and thank you for, pat- for your patience. And uh, yes, please go ahead and uh, talk about your story with our audience. Of course, well, thank you very much for having me, Samita. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast and to share my story. And, and hopefully my story will resonate with others who, who are in these situations and, and really want to know that there is hope at the end of the tunnel and they can get out of these situations and live a life that they truly deserve. Um, so my story really starts from, um, I've always been, it starts really when I was a child, you know, not when in my childhood, and, and none of us have perfect childhoods, but in my childhood, uh, I had loving parents, and I, but deep down inside, I never felt worthy. And there were certain there were experiences in my childhood that led me to believe that I wasn't worthy, and but I didn't realize it at the time that that's what I was feeling. And then those feelings of being unworthy, and those feelings of feeling not confident, and have, you know, affecting my self worth, truly impacted the decisions I made when it came to romantic relationships. And when I look back and see the, the series of people that I, and then that I had relationships with, they were not really the best suited for who I was. And they didn't really honor and serve the person that I am. So the, the biggest relationship that I've had thus far was my 20 year marriage to my, my first husband. And I was very young when I met him, I was in my twenties. Um, at that time, my, I was in a relationship, I had been in a relationship with someone else and I had gotten pregnant with my first daughter and he ended up getting murdered. He was shot and killed. And uh, my, my first husband was a, his best friend and they worked together when that happened. So um, during the process of grieving and, and, and going through that whole process and, and also being pregnant at the time, my first husband was very supportive. He was a friend. He was this person that I could rely on. And a, a year after this situation that my, my boyfriend was murdered, after that happened, we became good friends, which evolved into uh, a romantic relationship. And then we ended up getting married. And I, you know, I really truly thought he was my person. He was my soulmate. And about a and there were little, there were always red flags. And it's funny how you tend when you're in love with somebody, you tend to ignore those red flags. And there were red flags about how things he said, how he treated me. And there were always that fundamental question of respect. And when I think about him, I think there was no respect, but I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and that just evolved over time. And before I knew it, I started, he started treating me very differently. And he had a very bad temper, which I never really saw before. And, um, you know, it, before I knew it, I didn't feel like I had a, a personality anymore. I didn't have a voice. I was afraid to say and speak my truth. I was afraid to give my opinion because every time I did that, I was gaslighted. I was put down, told I was crazy you know, and then that evolved. And then after my, my first daughter was born, I mean, and the funny part is 
and in our, in our relationship, I mean, deep down inside, he was a good person. He just had his own demons to deal with that he never dealt with. So he was kind enough to say, well, I love, I love her. She's my daughter. So I'll adopt her. She adopted my first daughter at a very young age. Um, and, and that's the only dad she's ever known. But uh, so those things, you know, were great. And they were awesome things for someone to do. They were selfless in that respect. But they were so much overshadowed by the rest of the experiences, the, you know, the yelling, the screaming, the walking on eggshells, not knowing what I said or did or what the kids would say or did, because I had a second daughter shortly after. And, you know, it was like, what do we do? What, what you know, so you never knew when something was going to happen, when the next fight was going to occur. And there was so much control. I mean, the control kind of came slowly. I guess I didn't even realize I was being controlled until I, until it happened. I went, whoa, what do you mean? I can't just go out and meet friends. What do you mean? I can't, you know, have, a, have dreams, you know, after a while, they didn't have dreams because they weren't allowed. I couldn't be who I wanted to be. And, and the whole funny part about this whole situation was I was the breadwinner. My, my ex-husband, didn't work. I, I think in the 20 years we were married, he may have worked maybe six years of that 20 full time. I mean, he worked sporadically. So it was really my responsibility to, to, to support everybody. And when he decided, I'll never forget, when he decided to quit his first job, I was, I decided this is the only dream I ever had was to go back to graduate school. I wanted to get a master's and, and I waited until my girls were, uh, you know, six or seven. So they were a little older that he didn't have to really babysit them per se. They were old enough to take care of themselves, for, so to speak. So I decided to go back and he would uh, always pick a fight with me. Like my, I went to school on Tuesday nights and that man he had to pick the girls up from um, daycare. And that had to be done because I couldn't pick them up because I was in class. Every Monday night, or most of Monday nights, I would say he would pick a fight with me because he then he would say, well, I'm not going to pick them up. So that was held over my head. So I don't know how many Tuesdays I would sit at my desk calling the daycare center. Did he pick them up? Did he, are they picked up yet? And then I would, you know, I mean, there were so many times when I would be driving to pick them up and then I'd see him you know, come and going home and be like, really, you know, because as a, in graduate school, you can't miss classes. You, you, it's very strict. So it was just so on top of the stress of being in graduate school and working full time and work and supporting my girls, it was an added stress on top of that. But and then he decided shortly after he was going to quit his job, he was not well, things were wrong with him. So, and, and at that time I had a a uh, job that didn't pay very much. It wasn't enough to support our family, but it had to be because there was no other choice. So at that point, I thought, you know, I could quit my job and I could uh, find something else or I could work two jobs if I needed to, or I could stick with my program as hard as it was. I could stick with my graduate program, finish it up and find something better then. So I opted for that, that route. So I, you know, we, for Sahad, I'm not sure how we did it, but we did it. We got through those two years financially and otherwise, and I graduated and I was able to get a great job after that. But the funny part is when I'm going through all of these experiences and I talk about these experiences, what enters my mind, and it didn't at the time, was like, why did I uh, allow that to happen? And what I mean by that is, why didn't I kick him out? Why didn't I say, you know what, dude, if you're not working, you don't belong here, you, you need to leave. But I was so dependent on him in some respects, not in a healthy way, 
the codependency was very unhealthy. And I depended on him and he depended on me. And we just, in this uh, codependency, not unhealthy codependent relationship, which lasted for a long time. And I didn't realize it till much later. Um, but I think a lot of women, a lot of us put ourselves into those codependent relationships and not realizing that that's what we're doing. So, you know, fast forward, you know, 20 years later, well, 10 years later, maybe at that point, And I finally had enough. I finally realized that I needed to make a change. My girls were, you know, in high school, they were self-sufficient at that point. And I could also see the damage that being in such a toxic relationship also did to them as well. You know, here I was trying to be this role model and I was not succeeding at all. I was totally a failure because I'm showing them that this is the way a relationship should be like. And no, this is not a healthy relationship. This is a very toxic relationship. So I realized at that point, I needed to make a change, even though how hard it was, I needed to do something. So at that point, I told, I, I must've told him two or three times, I'm going to go through a divorce. I'm going to go through a divorce. And it was like crying wolf because I, part of me was still in love with that person, that good person, which I never saw very often anymore, but I was still in love with him. And I didn't want to give that up, but at the same, and I wanted to keep our family together, which after a while I realized why we don't have a healthy relationship. Why would I want to do that? So it, it took, um, it took me a couple of years to finally say, you know what? Enough is enough. So I went through a divorce attorney. I filed for divorce. And, and I remember at, at that point, I mean, this story, I haven't really shared with anybody, but this is the crux of why I finally decided to leave. I came home one night from, um, from working at that point, we had decided to, to separate. So he, we had a little guest house outside, a little shed outside that he lived in. And I lived in the main house with my daughter. And she was out that night, she wasn't home. And I got home from work. And at that point we had, a, we had about four or five dogs. So I, I came home and I noticed the dogs weren't in the house. I'm like, what happened to the dogs? So I went outside and he had all the dogs with him in that little, little shed. And he had gas cans all around the shed. And he said, if you don't, if you don't, um, if you don't stop this proceeding, I'm going to kill all the dogs and I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to set this thing on fire. And I remember just being so, felt so helpless and so, I don't know, I, I can't even, I can't even say in words how I felt, just felt so, it was just devastating. I don't even know if that's the right word for it. But I remember just trying to plead with him, don't do it, don't do it, you know, this and that. And he was, and then one of the dogs was my dog. She was a pug. And he remember him carrying her and said, I'm gonna throw her, you know, down and you know, and kill her because that's your dog. I mean, it was just so over the top. I don't even know how to explain it. So at that point, you know, when that happened, I, I remember going into the house and I didn't know what to do. And then things got quiet and then he released the dogs about an hour later, they came back in the house. But at that point I knew that's it. This is, this is beyond cuckoo. This is beyond serious. I mean, cause I, I had learned at that point to take everything he said for, for what he said. I mean, for truth, even though nine times out of 10, he probably wouldn't do it. I didn't know that. So I had to take everything he said for, for what it was for what it was worth. So I remember that morning, the next morning, I called my attorney and I said, you know, I, I need that restraining order now. 
And he said, okay, he goes, I'll go, to, I'll go to the lawyer. I'll go to, not lawyer. I'll go to the court in the afternoon and get it for you. And then, and he says, well, why do you need it so quickly now? And explain the situation as to what had happened. And I remember his voice, he just kind of stopped and paused and he said, oh my God. He goes, I'll go right and get it right now. He goes, I'm going to court right now and getting you that restraining order. And that was it. He, my ex-husband left the house and that was that, but it took, and that's when I think about it, which is, it took that in an extreme of a situation for me to say, you know what, enough is enough. You are beyond, <laughs> beyond anything. I, I'm done, you know? And then I found out later that those cans had no gas in them. It was all a bluff, but you know what? I didn't know that. I yeah. had to take his word for what it was because instead of assuming that it wasn't true, because you just never know, you know? So, so after that, I mean, we've been divorced for a long time, over 20 years um, now. And, you know, initially it was very toxic. He still wanted a relationship. And I said, no, we don't need one. Our girls are grown. There's no need for us to be in contact. So it took a while, it took about five or six years for them to just kind of for the dust to settle. And then, you know, now my girls are in their thirties and they're, they have a relationship with him, which I'm glad for. But it's, you know, they're adults and they've learned, truly have learned how to have those healthy boundaries with him. There are times when I don't think he likes those boundaries, but they make sure they put them in place. They say, if you want to have a relationship with us, this is what the boundaries are. So he's learned in, in some respects to have those boundaries with them and hopefully with others. But, you know, it, it took an extreme situation for me to finally say, you know what, it, I'm done. I, I'm truly done. And then it took me 10 years after that to truly heal myself because I had to do a lot of self-exploration. I wasn't ready or interested to be in any kind of relationship with anybody, <laughs> let alone, you know, I needed time for me to understand, to truly understand what made me tick. Why did I allow that to happen? You know, what are some of those value systems that I have in place that that may be good value systems? I, I think we all have value systems, but what value systems were a little skewed that made me think that I needed to stay in that relationship? Because I used to always tell my girls, we need to stay as a family. We need to stay together. And then I realized, why? This is not a family. This is not a healthy family. We don't need to stay in relationships that are not healthy, regardless of who's in those relationships. So it took me a long time to realize that. It took me a long time to realize who I was in accepting me and loving me, because for a long time, I didn't love me. And it was really obvious as to how I was treated and allowed myself to be treated. So over time, I realized, you know, I, what, who I was, that I deserved to be loved. I deserved to be treated in a, in a kind and respectful way as to how I treat others. And that led me to my discovery, I guess you could say my calling more than anything, to be a life coach. So I was in a career, a corporate career for 25 years. And as I mentioned during my story that that career helped me take care of my family. It helped me get through those hardships, if you will. But I realized, you know, that I didn't, it wasn't, my job didn't speak to my heart. I wasn't really living to my passions and my strengths. And I really wanted to help others, but I just didn't know how. And life coaching really came to me as a calling. And when I, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that that's really what I want to do. I want to work with women who are in toxic relationships of any kind. And they can be with friends, parents, children, 
it doesn't necessarily be a romantic relationship, but I really want to help those who feel stuck, like I did, who feel that there's no way out, that they've got no support. Because when you're in those relationships, you end up, your, your support system, whatever support system you had, tends to go, it goes away after a while. Because you, you are controlled by your spouse, he you know, he makes it really difficult for you to stay in those relationships with your family. I mean, my mom and I were close and she'd visit me every year. I lived, uh, she lived in Hawaii or she lived in Hawaii. And, um, you know, she wanted to be close to her grandkids, but he made it really difficult for that relationship to, co to continue, even though it did, but it was difficult, you know, and um, all of those close relationships I had with family and friends, they just kind of dispelled over time. I have them now, but I didn't have them then. So when it came to needing support to get out of those situations, I had no support. I had nobody I could call. And, and really, I felt more embarrassed too. Like, oh God, I don't want people to know what I'm going through. I don't want to tell people what's really happening in my house, how I'm being treated and how my girls are being treated. Or I didn't want anybody to know that because you know, then it, then I felt embarrassed and ashamed. I, I think of, as people in toxic relationships, we tend to take on those feelings of shame and embarrassment when it really isn't feelings we should even feel. It's really not something that we are creating. So therefore we shouldn't feel that way. Um, so, but it took me a long time to realize that. So being a life coach for women in toxic relationships allows me to work with women who are stuck who have no support system and provide them with that support system and also provide them with the tools to get out of those relationships, the skills to say, I'm a good person. I deserve to be treated that better and change those mindsets about ourselves and really move forward. Now, whether they want to enter into another relationship or not, it doesn't, that's not the goal. The goal is to say, I am valued. I am loved. I am honored. And no matter what kind of relationship I enter into next friendship, whatever it may be, I'm going to make sure that I am honored and people treat me with respect and really make sure that those things are there. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. I don't want to stop you, please. No. So that's, you know, that's why I, I really have been called to this. And when I work with women, when I, when I just have just conversations like this, it just really speaks to my heart that, you know, there's so many people out there that are in, in toxic relationships and not know, not knowing what to do, you know, not having somebody to talk to because they're ashamed or embarrassed. And um, knowing that there are people like myself out, out here in the world that you can speak to, that you can, you know, reach out to for help. And I want to be there for them and to say that I am that person who can then help you build that support group, support network that you're going to need to move forward, in not only in getting out of your relationship, but also thriving and blossoming as a person. And, and that's what we all need to grow. Amazing, amazing. When you said uh, your story can be resonated with at least some of the women, the first person, the reason that I actually got connected with you is your story is much more closer to me. Whatever you have gone through, most of it I have gone through myself. When I'm hearing your story, I feel like I'm I'm reliving or like rehearing my own story. And yes, you put up with the same thing for 20 years. Yes, I did that too. And I really don't know why I did that. As you were mentioning, that is the same kind of mindset that we are having, I believe. 
So instead of jumping at the point, I would like to start from the beginning. Uh, you mentioned in your childhood that you don't have that self-esteem or you never felt that self-worth. Is there any specific reason why you had that kind of uh, mindset? Yeah, you know, it's funny when I, it's funny, I, I knew later on in life that my self-worth was at an all-time low and I just didn't know why. But the reason for that later on in life, I realized was when I was a kid, um, I, I had a sister, an older sister, and my older sister um, was, uh, she, she still has um, health, not health, weight issues. She's had weight problems all her life stemming from emotional eating, which she's got her own issues to deal with as well. But when, she, when we were kids and my sister, you know, instead of my parents trying to teach us healthy eating habits, and I think in those days, people didn't think about healthy eating habits yes. like we do today. But when my sister would gain weight, which was very easy for her to do, given her, her, her body type and all that stuff, she would, you know, then she would ask my parents for something like, oh, I really want a new record. Uh, and my, my parents would go, it, well, if you want a new record, you're going to have to lose 20 pounds. And, you know, instead of giving her something, so they felt that that was their way of encouraging her to lose weight. So my sister for, had such great willpower. So she'd lose the 20 pounds, they give her the, the record, and then nothing was changed, meaning that for her, it was a reward system. Like, you know, I do something, I get a reward, but she had no understanding of how her health was being impacted and how changing her diet was a lifestyle change. It wasn't just a temporary measure you did to gain something else. But that kind of continued on and on and on throughout our childhood. So I remember when I was, um, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, I wanted a pair, my sister wanted a pair of go-go boots. And uh, she had asked for that, lost the 20 pounds, got her go-go boots. And then um, when I asked for it and I wasn't, I didn't have weight problems at the time. So I wasn't, there was nothing, I couldn't lose weight for it. But instead of finding something I could do to earn them, my mother just told me, no, you don't, no, you don't need them. No, you're not getting them. And I thought, but why? You know, I, I, she got a pair. Why can't I get a pair? So instead of finding something to me, she just kept telling me, no, no, you can't have them. So then my dad felt really bad for me because he thought, you know, so he went and took me to the store and bought me a pair of go-go boots. I came home, I was so excited. Oh, I got this, I was so excited. And then my mom saw them and she immediately started screaming at my dad. Why did you take her? Why did you get this for her? She, why? She didn't do anything for him. And, just, and so that was like the start of my self-worth getting slowly eroded away. So you know, I was never given the opportunity in those situations. And even it's funny because later on in life, I realized a lot of my family and friends started, had seen that too, like how my sister was treated, you know, given things much more than I was. And I think my parents didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as, well, we need to encourage her to lose weight. So we'll give her stuff, but they never made it so that I could gain things too. So for the longest time, I wanted things. I just never got them because I, you know, and then I, and I think in my mind, I'm trying to, as an adult, I try to, I don't know, rationalize, but I try to think about what my mom was going through because my mom and I later in life were very close. I mean, she was my best friend. And before she passed at 91, I took care of her for six years while she had dementia and other issues. But as so I try to understand from her perspective, what she was thinking, because I don't think deep down inside, she wanted to hurt me. I don't think that was her intent, but I think her intent was to be there for my sister. She knew my sister had mental health issues. And in those days, people didn't 
give them not labels necessarily, but they didn't diagnose you unless you really had something really egregious. But so she had issues. She's probably on the autism spectrum, I, I believe. But, you know, so instead of dealing with those issues, my mother just kind of, you know, gave her stuff like, oh, let's make her earn this. Let's have her do this. So treat her like, you know, protect her. My mother tried to protect her as much as possible. So if I remember instances where, you know, just little stuff like, you know, sweeping the floor, like my sister had a really difficult time figuring out. And I think part of it was that she just didn't want to do it. So she wouldn't sweep. So I get up there. Oh, I can do that. My mom would, no, you can't do it. She's got it, you know. So all of those issues, whether they were intentional or not, just led to me as a kid to feel unworthy. And those feelings just continued to grow and grow and continue throughout my life to the point as an adult, I you know, saw myself in these relationships that where I was treated so badly, but I didn't feel like I deserve any better. I didn't truly believe that I deserved to be treated better than I was. And now I look back going, oh my God, <laughs> what was I thinking? But I wasn't because of my mindset at the time. I felt so unworthy, so unloved that if someone showed me attention of any kind, negative or otherwise, it, that meant they cared for me. That meant that I was, you know, not, I'm not saying important to them, but I was part of their life. They were showing me attention. Now, negative attention, as we all know, is same in our minds are the same as positive attention. It's attention. <laughs> so that's what I looked at. It was attention. So I put myself in those positions and, and didn't it didn't really resonate with me until later in life when I went through that healing process that I talked about earlier that I realized my self-worth you know, I was eroded as a child. And because of that, it just kind of continued into adulthood. And until I recognized it for what it was and worked on it, that I was able to build my self-worth again. Why do you think people ignore red flags? I think people ignore red flags because they really want the relationship to work. They try to rationalize the red flags away. And I think to myself, that's what I did. You know, I... It, it's almost like having, I don't know, I don't know how to put this in a way, an unhealthy way of love, loving someone. And what I mean by that is, you know, I loved, I, in my mind, I loved my, my husband, my first husband, even though during our relationship prior to getting married, I saw these red flags. I mean, things he said, things he did, they were, they were controlling. I mean, they truly were his way of controlling me. But at the time they weren't as overt as they were later. But they were there. Those sides were there. And I ignored them because I, I loved him. I really think he's a great guy. So I just rationalized all of those red flags away. That because I loved him, you know, it really wasn't what I thought it was. And then later, you know, a year or two later, after we were married, I realized, boy, I wish I'd listened to those red flags. Because now they are coming to fruition. These are not just red flags. These are reality. This is what he's like, you know, his way of hiding anger. Like I remember there was many times when something would be said early in our relationship, somebody would say something or not necessarily me, but somebody would say something. And I know it triggered something in him. I could tell by his eyes, I could tell it angered him, but he had such a great way of hiding it. Either he'd walk away or he'd laugh or he'd do something that would hide that anger. And at first I thought, oh, maybe that's just his way of controlling it. You know, maybe that's a good thing. And I realized later it was just, he was, that was a big red flag for me to realize he had a temper, but 
it was, he didn't want to show that to me because he didn't want to scare me away. So, and then when we got married and a year later, boy, did I see those things. Somebody with that same incident would happen. Now he may not blow up at that person at that time. Cause they're like, you know, but he'll blow up at me. Like the person would leave and I get all the wrath from what happened, even though I didn't control the situation. I didn't say anything. It was this other person who said something, but because he had to blame somebody, he had to take his anger out on somebody. So I was the scapegoat all the time. But uh, I didn't see that until much late, until a year after we were married. And then before you know it, that became my life. I mean, we'd be in the store. I mean, you know, we'd be in the store and just something small would happen. Like, I don't know, some can would drop or <laughs> we'd buy the wrong thing or I'd pick up the wrong thing. And most people would be like, oh, big deal. Just put it back or whatever. He would sit there and yell at me. Like, what did you do? And, I, and it would be so embarrassing because I'd be in the store and I felt like I was two years old being scolded for something I've done, you know, even, and I remember sitting there just speechless most of the time. And then I'd see people looking back at us like, you know, and I feel so embarrassed. I feel like I really want to just run and hide. And, and it's funny because law, you know, kind of, you know, fast tracking till today. And I'm, I'm married. I have a, a wonderful husband. I don't think I would have found him if I hadn't helped heal my, who I was and understood what a healthy relationship was. And, and I remember when we first got together and something like that would happen where, you know, same kind of instant can would fall or something would break and he would be so calm about it. Oh, okay. We'll just clean it up. You know, <laughs> no big deal. You know, he wouldn't even react. It would be like, who cares? And I, it, but my first reaction, because I was so conditioned to reacting being ready to be yelled at, being ready to be ostracized, that I would start to, I could feel myself just kind of cringing, you know, and, and then I realized, wait a minute, he's not yelling, he's not doing anything, he's not saying anything, what's going on? <laughs> then I realized that's the way people behave, that's what healthy relationships are like, they don't, people don't yell at you for little things, because those are just accidents, but it took me a long time not to cringe, because I was so conditioned to, to act, reacting that way when things went wrong. But now I know that, you know, it's now I understand, fully understand what a healthy relationship looks like. You also mentioned that you were breadwinner, but you were still having him in your house and you were treating him well, or like, yeah, you are providing for him as well. I did that too. But I wanted to hear from your perspective as a coach as well. Why do people choose to do that when they are the persons who are breadwinners? They can live by themselves. They know what to do. They are even like out in the society to work on for themselves, taking care of the entire thing. But we still stick with the same person. Sometimes you might say like, yes, this is still like, yeah, we want the family to work or like, yeah, I'm still in love with that person. But having all these red flags, having everything around, that's not just the case. So why do you think from your side? That's a great question. And I, and I remember asking myself that question all the time after we were divorced. It's like, why did I do, why did I stay? And I think part of it was, I, I felt I, I have this strong maternal instinct and not necessarily because I'm trying to be his mother, but I have a strong maternal instinct to care for people. And I'm, I'm very much a caretaker. That's really who I am deep down inside I, I want to take care of people I want to make sure that they're they're taken care of that they're happy that I and I and I for some reason 
looked at that as being my responsibility for his happiness or anybody else's happiness. By the end of the day, I am not in control of everybody's happiness. They are in control of their own happiness, their own lives. But it took me a long time to realize that. So I enabled him to be the way he was because I allow, I took care of him. I felt that I needed to be there for him because I loved him. And I later on realized that the feelings I had for him, yes, in a skewed way, maybe it was love, maybe, but it was more, it wasn't really the love that I think is a healthy love. When you have a healthy love, you, you are selfless. And I think for a lot of times I was very selfless, but, it, but also I was, um, you know, I, I was, uh, I enabled his behavior. I accepted his behavior. And I thought, because I love you, I will accept your behavior. Well, that wasn't, and then the mere fact that I, you know, there are many times I, now looking back in, I think, why did I not force him to work? Why didn't I not push him to work? Why did I just give him an ultimatum like a lot of people do? Well, if you're not going to get a job, then you need to leave. But I didn't. I just kind of, put blinders on and I just went to work every day and I took care of my family and I didn't put those questions to him. And there are many times I have to admit, I remember um, sitting down in my car one day, I'll always remember this. It was a rainy morning and I remember going out to my car and I was going to go to work. And, and at that point, you know, we had this old chunky car because I couldn't afford anything else at the time. I remember getting in, I couldn't start the car. And I was like, frustrated and at the same time I didn't want to leave him home with my girls not that he would really abuse them or anything I just didn't want them to be around him anymore because he was so toxic but I didn't have anybody else to care for them um, and I think part of that maybe was the reason I let him stay I needed a babysitter which is really sad to say but but he was their dad it should have just been a no-brainer but I, he wasn't a good dad at the time so I felt guilty for keeping the girls with him but at the same time I knew I had to go to work to support us so it was a catch-22 and then I went in my car and my car wouldn't start and I remember just bawling I just fell apart at that point it was like a year's worth of stress and anger just came out of me at that point because I just felt so stuck and so alone and I had no answer as to how I'm going to get out of this situation you know what do I do what, do I leave my girls there? Do I take them? If I do, where do I go? What do I do? I need to work. Uh, you know, and I, I remember feeling so helpless, just so helpless. And then when my car didn't start, I was like, oh, God, now I can't even do anything anyway. It was just one of those helpless times when I had no answers. I had no, you know, nobody to lean on. And I looked at him as my partner, but not really you know, um, but I didn't want him to be there, but I had no choice. It was just so, it, it, I, I, I felt so lost and I felt so alone. Have you ever felt that you will be able to handle any kind of stress around the world? For example, in your situation, you are earning, you are managing your kids, you enrolled back yourself into the school and you were handling like so many things, so many scenarios all around, but the only stressing point or the most stressing point is always with that person. Have you ever felt in that way? And why, why do you think like that is the most stressing point? It is because you're right about the fact because you know, a lot of us women 
we play, have a lot of balls in the air, you know, job, children, whatever the case may be, family. Um, and and I, for some reason, I, could, I couldn't manage those balls. I, I, had a, I, I had a schedule, I, and this might sound crazy, but when I was in grad school, I had a, a schedule. I could, I, as long as I could keep to a schedule, and what I mean by that is I could plan stuff out because I'm really a planner. I put stuff together. As long as I can live in that plan, as hectic as it can get, I've got a plan. I can do this. But when you've got a volatile partner who you have no idea when things are gonna go crazy, when they're gonna go awry, you have no idea. You could say one word and boom, your whole afternoon's gone yeah. because he's renting and raving and, um, you know, and, and you depended on this person to do something for you and, and they're gone. Like I'm, I don't, you know, there's so many times in our relationship where he would do that. He would be so controlling that I don't, I don't even know what I said. I'd say something or maybe it was just his way of getting out of it really. Like if he had to watch the girls because I had to go meet with my 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 class or something, he would make up a reason why he couldn't do it or he'd fight. Okay, I'm leaving. And he'd go and I'd be like, oh, okay, now what do I do? So I'd end up either bringing my girls with me or I'd end up not going. But there were so many times that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't control that part of my life. You know, everything else I had some control over or if things went awry, I'd figure out a way to make it work but with my relationship with him I couldn't there's nothing I could do there's so many times when things would just go awry and I there's not I don't even know like I used to sit back going what had just happened what what, what happened <laughs> you know one minute we're okay the next minute he's gone I'm like what what happened and it was just his way of getting out of stuff or his way of just really controlling and hurting me because he knew that I was relying on him to do something were you always felt guilty that this is happening to you or like this is happening because of what you were doing? Yeah, I did. There were times in the beginning I used to feel guilty. Like, oh, I must have said something. Oh, I must have done something wrong. And then I go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> let's just play that tape over. And I realized, uh, no, I, I, well, I don't even know what I said, to be honest with you. But I mean, there, yeah, definitely there were times when I felt that I was like at fault. Oh, I just didn't say that. Oh, I just didn't do that. that, that I'd go through that scenario, even though I don't even know what I said to, to trigger it. But oh, maybe I, I shouldn't have said that or maybe I shouldn't have done that. Or you, know, you start second guessing yourself, but you have no idea which one of those situations actually caused the fight to begin with. You have no idea. This is so much to take. Okay. Uh. When you are explaining what I say, like, yeah, so much to take, to be honest, every single scenario, every single question that I'm asking you right now, I lived it. That's why I'm trying to like get it from the other person on how our mentalities are dealing with all these things. And you had a traumatic situation with the dogs. Of course, throughout you had like, yeah, whatever the traumatic uh, pains are, like the triggers that you had. And the situation with the dogs were like the biggest trigger that you wanted to go and get a restraining order right away. Later on in your life, how many days, years, or like whatever the time period that you took to heal that, what was the process like? And how do you actually feel with that situation? Well, the process took a long time. And I think part of it was just recognizing. I had to truly sit back and recognize what I was feeling and what I was doing. Because to be honest with you, almost was like being on autopilot. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, for the- I like you know, that word, okay. autopilot. <laughs> yeah, autopi 
autopilot. Like, you know, I'd be an autopilot most of the time. And, you know, I had to realize that, no, this is not the way I want to live my life. I don't want to live my life not knowing, not having a true partner, having someone always hold stuff over my head, um, having somebody who used to guilt me into things. Um, to You know, our, our finances were such a big mess. And part of that was because he would want something and he'd guilt me into it. And I'm like, no, but you really can't afford it because, you know, this is all we got. And, and he just guilt me into wanting whatever he wanted. So it it was just so unhealthy in a lot of ways. But it took me a long time to, to be able to take everything apart and realize what was truly unhealthy because it was my life. I was used, it was autopilot. I was used to do this, but I had to spend years trying to unravel everything to truly understand what happened or what was going on and then to build healthy habits or healthy even around money around you know everything i had to build healthy habits i had to understand first and foremost what was healthy and then build those into my life and and make those my next um, habits if you will throughout my life and then also having that good sense of self because to be honest with you i don't think most of my life i truly had a good sense of self um, I was um, a compilation of everybody else's opinions, especially my first husband's opinions on things. I became uh, whatever he thought. I didn't have my own voice. You know, whatever his, you know, so when people used to ask me, what do you think about this? I'd have to go, huh, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, because I never really had my own opinion for such a long time. I, I really don't know. So it took me years to figure out, okay, who am I? You know, what are my thoughts? What are my feelings? What are my true values? I mean, yeah, I kind of you kind of know basically what your values are, but really, what are my core values? So I did a lot of work in understanding my core values, whether they were through assessments, which is what I take clients through, but truly understanding well, who are you, you know, as a person? What are your innate core values that you were born with? What makes you tick? And it took me a while to figure out what makes me tick. And then, interestingly enough, going through the coaching program because I became a certified coach a couple of years ago. Going through that whole process helped me grow as a person. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I look back and go, oh, I kind of like the person I met today. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't see that person 10 years ago. I like who I am today, but it took a long time to get to that point. You know, now again, there are traits of who I am that I've always had, but I just hit those. I those were put in the fore background. Now I'm truly being the authentic person I am. And I and I'm I feel um, empowered to be that person. I feel that whether people accept me or not is not important. I am who I am. But it took me a long time to get there because I was very much a people pleaser. I wanted to make sure everybody liked me, and um, I never said anything wrong or and not wrong necessarily, but anything contradictory to what I believed other people believed. And now I feel like no, in order to be respected and loved, I've got to be me. And now whether people agree with me or not, it that's okay. They don't have to, but it's okay to be different. It's okay to have different opinions, but that's who I am. And I think people at the end of the day want to be the authentic person they are and be accepted or not accepted if that's the case, but at least it's who I am. When you say like, yeah, uh, your core values, what are your core values now with the person that you have become? Yeah, it's funny. My core values, and there's an assessment that I do that I'm now a, a uh, certified practitioner and it's called uh, the Taylor Protocols uh, Core Values Index and it's one of the only assessments that 
personality assessments, if you will, that you can take that truly measures your core values from the time you were born till now. So if you were to take this, this assessment when you're 10 and take it again when you're 50, you'd have essentially the same response because it's who you are innately. So for me, when I took the test, they've got four major categories. It's called innovator, merchant, builder, and banker. And each of those have their own personality traits. I'm a merchant banker. And my merchant means basically that I, I, want, I thrive on building relationships. I love other people. I love community, building a sense of community. I need people interaction all the time. And then I've got my banker side, which is someone who's very detail oriented, somebody who likes facts and figures, not necessarily figures, but facts, <laughs> and makes decisions based on data. So when I look at both of my, my, my traits or my innate core values, I realized that my job that I had for 25 years, I used my secondary, I used my banker personality traits to really do that job. So that's a job that requires you to read contracts, be very detail oriented, be able to negotiate pricing. Now I did it. I, I, I wouldn't say I was great at it, but I did it pretty well. I was able to make a good living at it, but I relied solely on my, my secondary set of values to do that job versus relying on my primary value, which is merchant. And when I look at my scoring, I scored very, very high as a merchant. And that's uh, those are the values that I never really put into place, like meaning I never really had a lot of relationship building in my job. I never really spent a lot of time interacting with people and then the helping and building community. I never really did that. So now my life coaching allows me to utilize those skills at the forefront. So now I realize that's why I love what I do, because I'm using those core innate value being a merchant all the time, every day. That's what I'm using more so than my banker. My banker comes into play when I'm building my business, but I'm spending 90% of my time with people. And that's really what I thrive on. So understanding what your core values are, really understand what you should be doing with your life and what makes you happy, what makes you tick, what could you do that you love doing, kind of helps you develop that roadmap to where you need to go. Well, I, I would just love to say that, you know, you're not alone. If, if any of you are struggling or any of you resonated with any part of my story and, and you feel that you're alone, you're not. There are there are those out there. We, we're here for you where we understand. Let's me that I understand your pain and your struggle and, and know that you don't need to go through this alone or you don't even need to be in this relationship. There's so much more out there for you if you just allow yourself to breathe, allow yourself to find someone and something that can help you get out of that life and that you were not meant to, to struggle. You were meant to be free. You were meant to be the person to live your life potential. I truly believe that we're all put on this earth with a purpose and we're all there to find that purpose and find our passions and live the best life possible. Okay, thank you for tuning in and you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.